Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We are so proud of what we've accomplished on the first season of Beyond Fear. None of this would have been possible without all of you, our brave listeners. We began this endeavor as a labor of love with the goal of bringing our academic expertise and our lived experience to a broad public audience. You've helped us accomplish something far beyond our expectations. We have hit 10,000 downloads and were recently named in the top 100 true crime podcasts on Apple Podcasts. We never expected this. But when you build something out of love and respect and common values, the sky is the limit. With that in mind, we bring you our final main episode, which we have been building to all season long. Today, we are talking about restorative justice, a process that both of us have experienced. We will talk about what restorative justice is generally, and then what the process has meant to us personally as survivors. As always, conversations around sexual violence can be difficult to listen to. We further acknowledge that conversations around restorative justice may be difficult to sit with. We recognize that this process is not for everyone, but we hope it will leave you with something to think about. I'm Dr. Alexa Sardina. And I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. Thank you for joining us as we take you beyond fear. So I'll never forget the first opportunity that I had to sit with men who had committed acts of sexual harm. I was home visiting my parents in South Florida, where I grew up. And a close friend of mine uh, is a treatment provider in South Florida who works with um, people who have uh, perpetrated sex crimes. And she asked me while I was home if I'd be willing to come speak to the men in her treatment program about my experience as a survivor. Now, now this friend was somebody um, who was one of the first people that I disclosed to. I had tried for years to tell her. Um, I remember one time being in the car with her driving from Miami north on the highway. It was dark out and I was looking out the window thinking, how am I going to tell her that I'm a survivor? And it took me another three years to tell her. So if you can imagine going from a place where a survivor has told nobody to walking into a room with approximately 15 men who you know have been convicted of a sexual offense to share your story as a survivor, uh, how powerful that can be, but also 
the apprehension that that might elicit. Mm -hmm. Now, I've spent my entire career working with people who have perpetrated acts of sexual harm. I have been in prison cells. I have been in civil commitment centers. Um, I have been face to face with people who have committed very severe sex crimes, Mm -hmm. but I've always done so as Dr. Ackerman. This was the first experience that I had as Alyssa survivor. So I walk into this office and I walk up to my friend's private office and she asks me if I'm okay. And I was visibly shaking. <laughs> and, you know, she, are you okay, Alyssa? And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Like my hands were shaking. Yeah. Um, and then we went down and I had this conversation with these men. So it was two groups that first night, two groups of about 15 men, an hour and 15 minutes each session. Mm-hmm. And they could tell that I was really nervous, even though I told them that I wasn't. Right. They could see right through it. But I had the opportunity to share with them in ways that I have not shared about my rape. Mm -hmm. I've been in therapy. I've done the trauma work. That was always very helpful. Yeah. But nothing... Nothing prepared me for the healing that came out of that first session. So there are things that I shared with them that I had never shared. Yeah. Um, you know, when we talk about being survivors and we talk about the experience, we don't share the intimate details. Right. Yeah. I shared those and I was not expecting to do that. Yeah. And, you know, you fast forward after that night. Um, the very next night, I asked this friend to drive me back to the beach where I was raped. Yeah. I had been back one time before then during the day, but I hadn't been back at night since the night of the rape. Mm. And I was able to stand out on that beach and recount everything that I remember. Um, And it was just a beach. Now I've taught about restorative justice my whole career. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that night that that's what we were doing. I knew that restorative justice could be healing. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that it would be so healing that I could walk out to the place where my life almost ended Mm -hmm. and stand there calmly and say it's just a beach. Right. So from that night on, I was sold. <laughs> and I'm sure throughout the episode, we will talk about what that has looked like. Yes. Because um, then you but- sold me. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to ask you, Liz. So I know you both have talked about this, that in those spaces with people that have perpetrated sexual harm, 
um, I, t- I also tend to be more comfortable sharing things that I necessarily wouldn't share in other spaces. And why, why do you think that is for you? Um, that's a good question. So I think number one, from the get go, it is a safe place. Yeah. It is a safe space that we create mm-hmm. and we, in- we create it with the intention that people are going to be vulnerable. There is a solidarity that comes with other survivors. There's a knowing. Um, you and I have it mm-hmm. where we don't even have to speak the words. That's right. We just get each other. Mm-hmm. I never expected that kind of solidarity with people who had perpetrated acts of sexual harm. But what I came to learn very quickly is that they understand in a way that others don't. One, because many of them are also survivors. Right. But two, because they were on the other end of the same act. Right. Uh, It's a weird thing. It is. And I think because there's an assumption that because they're on the perpetration side of the act that that they are unaware of, I don't know, I don't want to say the impact or consequence of it, but you can go into all the gnarly detail because like they were there too, essentially. Like that, that's, it's a place where you're not worrying about shocking or offending or any of that kind of stuff. Like they can hear it. I think that's a really good point that you make. I am often... I don't ever want to say anything for shock value. Right. Yes. I don't ever want to share some of the details for fear of triggering another survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I don't necessarily want people thinking of me. Yeah. In that way. And I never want to make anyone feel like... I'm trying to say my experience was somehow worse than their experience. Like I, that's always my biggest fear because they're all awful experiences. They're all shitty, awful experiences. And there is no, you don't, there is no comparison chart that goes along with that. But there are some things I don't share because I don't want to, like you said, upset other people or trigger other people. And in the the context of the treatment sessions that we're talking about, you don't have to worry about that. You can kind of be completely open. You can be completely open, which is a difference that I felt right away. Yeah. Um, I found that there were things that I could talk to these men about, things that I could share, that I shared with them before I shared with my trauma therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really really shocked me Mm -hmm. yeah um they get it they do they get it in a way that other people don't get it because they've done it Mm -hmm. yeah and it's it's just an amazing experience but i'll let you continue on (laughs) (laughs) um so after that first session um my colleague and i um talked about you know, what was it that we had accomplished that night? And how could we turn this into something more formal? 
So we started looking at restorative justice models. Like we knew that. We knew that's what we had right, done. Right, right. Um, in speaking after the session and debriefing. Um, and so then we talked about ways that we could formalize this. Now, that first night, there was a man there um, who at the end of the session asked if he could give me a hug. And I threw my arms around him. <laughs> and it was... I sometimes don't think that I have the right words to describe what that moment was like. This was a man who served 20 years in prison for a violent rape um, that was fairly similar to the one that I experienced. Um, and so for the two of us to embrace like that, if you could imagine the emotion that both of us felt. Um, as I said, I don't even have words yeah. for what that felt like. So as my colleague and I were sort of formalizing this process, we talked about something called vicarious restorative justice, which is kind of what I have come to specialize in. Mm -hmm. Although we'll talk later about some of the other kinds of sex crimes cases that I facilitate. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we did was talk about um, having me come in as a proxy survivor to sit with these men and talk about their own cases. Mm -hmm. And so we formalized that process. And I came back um, six months later. Mm -hmm. And this man allowed me permission to read the police report in his case. And then we did this one-on-one -on -one restorative justice session. We call it victim offender mediation. And the other men in the group served as support people for him. Mm -hmm. And my colleague, my friend, served as a support person for me, essentially. And so we started this session where I talked about the offense that he committed. And I said, this is what you did to me. This is what I remember mm -hmm. of the offense. And I took all of that from the police report. And then I turned it and I said, and this is what the consequence has been like for me all of these years. Yeah. And I used my own experience. And both of us were sobbing. <laughs> Um, you know, I don't know the man who raped me. It was a guy I met at a party 20 minutes before it happened. Um, and would love the opportunity to sit face to face with him. But having somebody who committed a very similar offense sitting right in front of me, mm -hmm. saying all of the things that I wanted to say to the man who raped me was really powerful. Yeah. And this guy, when we finished, he said, you know, I sat in a prison cell for 20 years. I didn't realize until tonight the impact of the harm that I caused. Yeah. Uh, that was, it was life changing yeah. for both of us. Um, so those are the kinds of formal processes that we've created, starting with that first one. Mm -hmm. And to, to date, I have now worked with about 530 men and women who have perpetrated acts of sexual harm um, doing this kind of restorative justice. And along the way, somehow I convinced you <laughs> uh, to participate. Yes. So I want to ask you, mm -hmm. um, was it something that I said or was it just that first session that we did together in Minneapolis? I don't think you shared with me like the details of what you you like I knew you had been going to Florida and doing stuff um but I don't think I was 
aware of the details of maybe what was going on or necessarily how it specifically was helping you, but I knew that you took away something positive from it. And I had been interested in restorative justice and it always crossed my mind, like, what would that look like in acts of sexual harm? And there, for a long time, there's there and there still is a lot of sort of uneasiness in some groups of of using um, RJ in terms of to to as like a healing modality for acts of sexual harm. But I was sold, I guess. You just asked, you asked me to go to Minneapolis and do it. And I was like, sure, on my birthday, no less. Um, so, yeah, I guess I can just, just describe what we did a little bit. Sure. Um, so, essentially, you invited me to go to Minneapolis and participate in what is – a healing circle, essentially, um, which is sort of another um, form that restorative justice takes and looks like. Uh, and Alyssa also participated and I, two other survivors. And then a friend of Alyssa's who had perpetrated an act of sexual violence but had never been um, incarcerated for it or really ever talked about it. Um, too much was also there and he was really the person that kind of asked for this to happen right Liz Mm -hmm. so um, then there was also our circle there was a facilitator there so she kind of led us through the process and um, kind of kept us all on track as we we moved through and and discussed um, how sexual harm or sexual violence had impacted our lives and that was really one of the first questions that I remember coming up and um, as we moved around the circle there's a a talking piece that you hold so when the person's holding it it's their turn to speak and I think I went after you Mm -hmm. and I was fine like the first way around the circle I think I was totally okay and then the, the question came of how has sexual violence impacted your life? And I was just like, I laid it all on out there. I completely let go. When I listened to Alyssa share her perspective, I, I started crying. I just really completely laid bare in all of the ways sexual violence had impacted my life, which I had never done before um, in such a honest way, because I finally had the opportunity to tell the person that harmed me figuratively, of course, but it very much felt like the person that harmed me was finally having to listen to what he, what I experienced, what happened because of this terrible act. Right. And, it was it was amazing to be able to to do that and to have a person granted not my perpetrator but a person who's had a similar experience listen to me because even though i went to court and even though i testified like there's no sense of any listening um or being able to just share it my story the way i wanted to share it and not in the format that the criminal justice system makes you share it um, I didn't have to worry about, did I use the wrong word 
and they're going to say, you know, well, in your first testimony, you said shower stall. And in this one, you said bathroom stall. So do you really remember? Like, I didn't have to worry about that part of it, which was refreshing. Mm-hmm. You could say it in your own time, in your own way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I talked about the addiction stuff, the alcohol piece, the food issues, the control issues. And then so when we got around the circle um, to speak uh, with this man again, and he spoke about the impact it had on his life, and he spoke about addiction issues, and he spoke about alcohol and having trouble with food and control and all of those things, it was... I was gobsmacked. I was not expecting that. I was not expecting he and I to have so much in common, but I just felt such a strong kinship almost with him because it was like we had lived each other's lives afterwards, like in very similar ways. Um, It was shocking to hear that he was disgusted with himself after. I think that I and many other people are under the impression that after somebody commits an act of sexual harm, they just like go about their lives and just, you know, it's like no skin off their teeth. It's no big deal. That might be true for a very small number of perpetrators, but for the majority, it, it has, it takes a toll. There is an impact. Um, and I felt that when I spoke with him. And to this day, I feel a very close affinity to this person and stay in touch um, because I just do feel like we shared something so important that day um, that, you know, nothing can really replace that. So I was converted after <laughs> that was my conversion ceremony. <laughs> I, was good after that. <laughs> I was ready to go on and do the next and do the next thing. So. Yeah, it was it was amazing. And I really didn't I don't know, I just went in and did it. I really didn't give it, it it was shocking almost how much it it healed. It healed a lot. Like Alyssa said, I have been in therapy forever and this was more healing than anything else that I've done. For sure. If you could see us, we're shaking our heads at each other. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, it was, you know, and I've worked with other survivors who have reached out and asked me to facilitate Mm. um, restorative justice sessions for them and the person who has harmed them. And they have said very similar things. I've uh, one client who said she tried every single healing modality she could think of, mm-hmm. every form of therapy, and it was after restorative justice that her PTSD went away mm-hmm. after ten years. Yeah. Um, now I'm not saying that every case ends that way, right. and. I'm not speaking as a researcher mm-hmm. right now. I'm speaking as a survivor and as a facilitator. But anecdotally speaking, what we have seen oh, yeah. come out of this has been phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we should talk a little bit about what restorative justice is, like the the, the principles sure. behind it, the framework of it. And then we can come back mm-hmm. and talk about some of this. So um, 
when I talk about restorative justice, I say that it is a framework under which there are lots of different practices that we can use. Um, But really, if I am honest about it, to me, restorative justice is a way of life. Absolutely. It is not a thing that you do. It is who you are. Mm -hmm. So it is how you navigate every relationship that you have. Mm -hmm. And that comes out of the work of um, Howard Zare, Mm -hmm. who wrote the little book on restorative justice. And in it, he has um, an appendix on 10 ways to live restorative. Yeah. Uh, and so from that, you know, it's the humanity of all people, truth telling, authenticity, calling out racism and sexism and xenophobia and transphobia and homophobia when you see it, being accountable for your actions when you have caused harm, you take accountability, mm-hmm. caring about the environment, caring about other people, like all of that stuff is how we should navigate the world. Right. And that comes from indigenous practice Mm -hmm. right this is not something that some white guy in the united states developed 20 years ago although you'll hear people talk about like modern restorative justice yeah no this has been around forever forever Um, and when you look at indigenous communities here in north america but also around the world Mm -hmm. you see these circle processes Mm -hmm. You see the importance of connection with other people, with other living beings, with the earth. Mm-hmm. That is a way of life. Yep. And when you are intentional about that, um, it shifts the kinds of relationships you have with other people. Mm-hmm. So I see that in the relationships I have with my students mm-hmm. and my friends and my colleagues. And right, it's very much a... I care about your humanity and your well-being mm-hmm. before anything else. Yeah. So that's the foundation. Mm-hmm. As I said, it's a framework. It's focused on the harm that is caused. Right. And not the statute that is violated. Right. So um, the person has to be fully accountable and responsible for their actions. But the outcomes that we get for accountability... Mm-hmm really are holding people truly accountable for sure yeah um in ways that the criminal justice system can't and maybe you can speak to that a little bit lex like you know you went through a trial Mm -hmm. the man who raped you went to prison and i'm sure you heard he has been held accountable he's serving this long sentence Mm -hmm. and because of that i felt like i never had the right to complain about the about any of it right like that the I, for a long time, I didn't want to talk negatively about the trial process because I felt like like I'm one of the lucky few that, you know, got to get, get through it and get a guilty verdict. But in all honesty, I would have rather have sat down and spoken to him and had him acknowledge what he did. I mean, this whole the whole trial is about denying what you did. There's no space for holding people accountable without furthering punishment. So no, the first thing any defense attorney is going to tell you is shut your mouth. Don't say anything. Certainly don't, don't admit to anything. Um, and so we don't have space for that. And so therefore both parties are completely separated. And there's no space for that intimate healing that takes place in a restorative setting. The humanity, there is no humanity within our criminal justice system. 
my apologies to out there to anybody who disagrees, but that's how I feel about it. You are, you're an offender. You're a victim. The, the state does what it does. The courtroom players do what they do. At the end of the day, though, you go home and nothing changes, regardless mm-hmm. of the outcome. Yeah, you know, it reminds me, I don't know if I've ever shared this publicly, <laughs> um, but I have definitely talked to people about it and the responses that I have gotten. Maybe you've heard me talk mm-hmm. about this, but I remember during my assault, looking up at this man and thinking to myself, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. What happened to you to make you think that this is okay? That this is okay. Right? And I want that answer. Yeah. I've gotten that answer mm-hmm. from 500 men. Right, right. I have not gotten that answer from him. When you talk to survivors, they will tell you that they want an apology, Mm -hmm. that they want to understand why. They want to know why them. Mm -hmm. They want to know that the person is doing whatever they can to ensure that they don't do it again. And they want true accountability. Mm -hmm. Very rarely, very rarely do you hear survivors say, throw the book at them. They want to understand why. And if they understood why, that might provide them with some closure. Yep. That it really wasn't about them per se. No. No. And it's just... We know our criminal justice system fails survivors, period. And even if they do get the winning outcome, which would be my outcome, the winning outcome, I still felt I benefited more from the restorative process than any other any other type of criminal justice intervention that I could have experienced. And, you know, what would that look like with the man that, that raped me? I don't know necessarily what that looked like. Would I sit down with him? I would. Um, and I think it would be interesting to, to have that conversation. And I, cause I still have those questions. Um, but I think it does bring a sense of, I don't know, closure is a tough word for me, but I think it brings a sense of peace. It brought a sense of peace for me. Like my mind rested easier because it was just like, (sighs) like it was all out there and it was okay. And people were acknowledging that, yes, this is a horrible freaking thing and it happened to you. And we're sorry that this happened to you. And we're sorry that it happens to anybody. So, yeah, that's my feeling on it. What do you think you'd say to the man who raped you if you had the opportunity to sit with him? Um, I, I mean, I think I'd want... See, that's really hard because the criminal, the criminologist in me wants to ask certain questions and then Alexa wants to ask certain questions. <laughs> Just because of the nature of my assault, there's certain questions that I'd, I'd want to ask. Um, but I'd want to ask, I guess, first, like, what has your life been like since this has happened? Cause I want to tell you also what mine's been like since this has happened. Um, like, do, does, I, I mean, does, would he even acknowledge that 
that he perpetrated this offense. I don't even know if he would still, if he would admit it now. So it's really hard to know, you know, but I would like to be able to tell him no holds barred what the past 20 years have been like for me, you know, and I honestly hope that he has found some peace of mind around it all because it's not a good way to go through life torturing yourself. So, but yeah. Yeah. Maybe someday. <laughs> the guys in that first treatment group asked me that question. Mm-hmm. What would you say if you had the opportunity to sit down with him? Mm-hmm. And what came out of my mouth was not what I would say now. <laughs> um, <laughs> what came out of my mouth was, I forgive you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I was full of rage. Yeah. For a really long time. Um, and that that didn't serve me anymore and I had to let it go. Yeah. Sure. I would still want to tell him that. Mm-hmm. But more than that, I want him, just like you said, I want him to know the impact of this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's so powerful about this process with these other men. Like, mm-hmm. it's not just the immediate personal right consequence it's the ripples it's the long term ripples like you said like the impact on our families on your children on my mom on everyone who loves us this is a part of their life too mm-hmm. and and the and the the people who perpetrate these offenses don't get they that. don't get that mm-hmm. and they need to hear it yeah they yeah. need to hear it so Aside from this work that we do in treatment groups, and, um, you know, we've done this work in Oregon, we did the accountability circle in Minneapolis, I've done this in Florida and here in California, and we are building that out. Mm -hmm. It's a slow process, but we are certainly building it. And then um, I facilitate cases in the broader community, and, you know, we're working together to ensure that you are able to facilitate those cases in the broader community. Um, and so accountability there looks a little bit different right. because the cases that we do in treatment, uh, treatment spaces, those people have already been processed through the criminal justice system. Right. Um, there is nothing that we can do as survivors in those spaces to say, this is what you need to do to be accountable. Right. But in the community, when, um, you know, somebody who has been sexually harmed contacts me or somebody who has perpetrated sexual harm right. contacts me and we build out this process. Accountability the, can look many different ways. Many different mm-hmm. ways. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the outcomes. Okay. Um, so the first thing that comes to mind is the accountability circle we did in Minneapolis. And this person, um, this man having a background in nonprofit work. Yeah. And one of the survivors there was building a nonprofit organization that you were involved mm-hmm. with helping. Mm-hmm. Now imagine a survivor-centered organization <laughs> run by survivors for survivors. Yep. Where a person who has perpetrated sexual harm Provides his services and expertise in nonprofit work 
pro bono to build an organization mm. for survivors. He- Do you want to talk a little bit about what that looked like and felt like? It was, it still is amazing to me because we are all still working together. And it has been, I mean, I just am always so impressed with his dedication to this. I mean, this has become something that is so important to him and he never shrinks away from accountability he never he never backs away from sharing his story he is incredibly incredibly brave and i have to say like i think it was brave on all of our parts especially um the person who was founding this organization to to accept this form of accountability as well i mean everyone took a risk and it's really worked out beautifully. So, I mean, that's probably the coolest version of or outcome of accountability I've, I've heard of. And it takes some really special people to make that, that a reality. And I, I value those folks. Absolutely. Another thing that this man agreed to do was sit in as a proxy for me in other cases that I facilitate where he sits in as the person who has caused harm, um, when, especially now through COVID when I have done cases yeah. over Zoom. Um, and he has sat in as a man who has committed rape. And it has been so profoundly healing for those survivors. Yeah. Um yeah, th- that is accountability, right? Um, I think about some of the other clients with whom I have worked, um, offering and being willing to also sit in as proxies mm-hmm. in cases that I've done, um, agreeing to sit down with their family members and tell them the truth about what they did. That's huge. 10, 20 years That's later. That's huge. Uh, having conversations with their um yeah as i said family friends about their behavior what they learned about the consequences of their behavior um making the commitment to remain in sobriety because they recognize that substance use uh allows them to behave in ways they wouldn't if they were sober um accountability so apology is not passive right true apology and accountability is active and there's nothing about the criminal justice process that allows for that nothing that allows for creativity Mm -mm. the way that restorative justice does Mm -hmm. and you can like and you would never do anything that is particularly harmful for somebody who has caused harm right and even though the process is always survivor centered the survivor doesn't have full reign to say this is what i want to happen to that person right. because it wouldn't be restorative justice if that's that's how it worked you wouldn't be respecting the humanity of the other person if it was retributive or you know a, a punitive sort of vindictive process so we've talked now about what this process has been like for us in the community and in these treatment groups. And we've talked about how accountability can be 
really creative when you're doing restorative justice in the community. And most of the clients that I've worked with in the community have not gone through the criminal justice process. Um, you know, the statute of limitations is up, whatever. They haven't gone through the process. But we have also done some work with people who are incarcerated. And that is work that you have been at the forefront of mm. at your university and invited me in uh, pre-COVID yeah. um, to be a part of. So could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I was um, invited by the chair of my department, um, Dr. Ernest Duwazi, who started the Victim Offender Dialogue Program at Folsom Prison, men's prison here in California. And sort of like Alyssa was initially invited in um, to speak as Alyssa Survivor, I was invited to come in and speak as Alexa Survivor, not Professor Sardina. Um and these are men that, you know, come, come from a variety of, of backgrounds and various charges. None of them, to my knowledge, have committed any acts of sexual harm. Um, but I, I shared my story with them in a, in a way very similarly to how I've done in, in restorative processes before. And I, I, I cannot say enough about my experiences at, at Folsom. I, love going there. I ended up going now, I, I go once, well, up until COVID, I go once a month um, and I've started to design the program um, there for them to, and, and these are guys that may never have the opportunity to speak with the victim, their victim. Um, in some instances, their victim is they they murdered their victim so they're hoping to speak maybe one day to the surviving relatives or but they know there's no opportunity for reduced sentence um they know that this is just a step in personal growth for them and i think that it it's just it's hard to describe this this sense of safety i feel with them and sharing my story and mutual respect and the sense of healing. Um, there's so much vulnerability sitting in the circle with those guys and they are willing to hear my story. And when they hear my story, they often reflect back on to their experiences with sexual violence. A lot of these guys, mothers were our survivors. Um, a lot of them express concern about their daughters that are not, they're not there to protect or their granddaughters. Um, so it has been a really, really moving experience overall. And um, I don't know, Alyssa, do you want to share some more about that? Sure. Um, so Alexa gave me the opportunity uh, to come meet these guys. Um, and I'm not sure what I was expecting because all of the RJ work I've done has been with men who have committed sex crimes. So this was a first for me mm. to meet with men who had committed other offenses. Now, um, if you can sort of picture this cold, rainy winter day. Oh, it, was ter it was terrible. It was terrible. Um in a prison 
that like we were in a gymnasium and the acoustics were terrible and there's open toilet stalls open like guys were getting up from the group and just walking to the other end of the gym and going to the bathroom right in front of all of us and the paint is coming off the walls and it's, it's dreary and there's no color it's just concrete it's- and it's gray and raining outside it was a disgusting miserable day yeah pretty much yeah <laughs> and yet in this circle was such beauty mm-hmm. um so you know i i shared as well i remember one of the questions that i got and i was thinking about this earlier in the uh, episode when i talked about the guy who had committed a violent rape and me talking to him as a survivor yeah. of a violent rape and one of the first questions that i got in the group that day was from a man who said well why why do you call it a violent rape mm-hmm. Um, and I had to think about yeah. my response to that. And uh, my response was, well, all rape is violent mm-hmm. rape, <laughs> right? Any kind of intimate violation of somebody's body is inherently violent. Mm-hmm. And then I spoke about why I specifically used that word mm-hmm. for my experience and sort of gave them the understanding of what that meant. Yeah. Um, and they they heard it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other moment that stands out for me was after that session. It's a, it was a big group. Yeah. It, it, that this, this group is quite big. So I think there's like 25 guys in this group, which is the biggest one so far. Um, and one of them came up to me afterwards and he said, so we'd been talking about Mm self-forgiveness that day. Um, and he came up to me and he said, you know, it's not lost on me that, not only did you forgive the man who raped you, but you're doing this work that you're doing. And I am stuck here in prison for the rest of my life because I murdered the man who raped my daughter or my stepdaughter. And I took away her ability to heal. I took away her opportunity to talk with him. Mm-hmm. Or to, to navigate any process, yep. Yep. I took it away. And now I'm stuck here for the rest of my life for it. Mm-hmm. So it's those kinds of insights that come from that group are just different. It's, yeah, they're just a great, a really great group. And I think it also opens their eyes to the pervasiveness of sexual violence. Like they really start to see, wow, like when they think back, how many women do I know, you know, that were, were sexually victimized. And I've been in dialogue with a couple of them privately about, um, for example, one, um, one gentleman's wife was assaulted while he is incarcerated and she's really struggling and she doesn't want to talk to anybody about it. And so I've been trying to help him sort of offer her certain resources and things where, you know, support she can get anonymously and things like that. But, you know, it just goes to show you how these traumatic events impact all of us and sitting down and talking about them in a very mutually respectful way can be healing on many, many, many levels. You know, I think about the ripple effects of trauma Mm -hmm. that we've talked about. The ripple effects of restorative justice Mm -hmm. um, 
are very evident to me. You know, one of the, I think about this one client that I worked with who at the end of our first session um, talked about how he himself was assaulted when he was a young boy. And I see that a lot Mm -hmm. in the clients that I work with. Um, But after our process, he began a restorative process with the person who harmed him. So trauma has ripple effects throughout one's lifetime. Um, Restorative justice has ripple effects for healing that are far greater than we realize. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to see that. Yes. And I, and you know, like we've talked about many times, Alyssa, I don't ever say that this is something every survivor should go and do. It's not for every survivor and certainly not every perpetrator is in a place where they would be receptive to something like this or, you know, would want to engage in something like this. But I think what I keep sort of saying and I keep telling the guys at Folsom that, you know, to, to sort of keep hope alive because the more we talk about it and the more people understand what it is, the more you might have the opportunity to apologize and, and, you know, they don't, it's not even seeking forgiveness at this point. They want to apologize, but a lot of people aren't aware that this is an option or an alternative, you know? And when we're talking about sexual violence, we know the criminal justice system isn't getting many of those cases. And so if, and in many instances, we're talking about being harmed by someone we know or care about, maybe we don't want to report that person to the criminal justice system, but we want that person to be held accountable in a meaningful way. So restorative justice allows for that, and it allows the community to be a part of that as well. And I think that that's, you know, another important aspect of this. You you're, you have to think about the family and community healing effects as well, like when we're talking about the ripple effects. Mm-hmm. You know, and it occurs to me as we approach the end of the episode, um, people who do know that restorative justice exists in the world oftentimes think that it is soft. Yeah. Or, you know, I've seen a lot of this in the last year or two in the media where people are talking about restorative justice, but they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. With over 500 people that I have interacted with who have that I have interacted with Mm -hmm. who have caused sexual harm pretty much every single one of them has said I would rather sit in a prison cell than face you Mm -hmm. like think about a harm that you've caused in your life any of you listening Mm -hmm. think about a harm that you've caused and think about what it felt like or what it feels like to have to own up to that And be accountable and apologize. That is really hard to do. Mm -hmm. Now imagine that it's for a rape that you committed. Yeah. Right. Or some other form of sexual abuse or sexual harm because that runs the gamut, right? right? Um, That you have to own that. These are really uncomfortable conversations and requires some deep digging and some hard work. And that's not to say that some people shouldn't be Mm -hmm. incapacitated in some way because they should Mm -hmm. um those are just the rare rare 
but it's rare. It's rare. It just makes me think, Liz, of one thing just to add before we go is when we went to Oregon and we went into that first group of guys and I was really nervous. Um, I don't know why I was really, but I was nervous. And I remember sitting down and they all looked a hundred times more nervous than I did. (laughs) And it was so bad that they couldn't speak. They couldn't start the meeting. And they had actually written down questions ahead of time just in case they were too scared to start the conversation. And it was just so... It's just... It's a lot to be, to stand up and say, I did this and it was wrong and I want to take full responsibility for my actions. It's super hard to do that. It's a lot easier to be sentenced in prison passively by someone you don't know, you know, for a number of years, however they determine it, and never really hear from the survivor and their family and really hear the impact. It's that's It sanitizes the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas RJ is much more real and vulnerable. And really gives survivors the opportunity yeah. to share in whatever way they choose to share. And I think that's why this has been so powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you know, sort of to end the season, we are two sex crimes experts. Mm -hmm. We spend our lives dedicated to the study of this societal problem. Mm -hmm. We know the ins and outs of it. We know the policies around it. We know why it happens. We understand our own stories and our own trauma in ways that a lot of people don't because we do this work. Mm -hmm. And it was still the most powerful thing we ever did by far for our healing Mm -hmm. by far. So it's not for everybody Mm -hmm. for sure, but we hope that this gives you something to think Mm -hmm. about and maybe consider the possibility. Get curious. Yeah. Get curious. Yeah. Any last words you have? No, thank you everybody for an amazing season and we'll be coming back for a final special edition episode where we will answer some of your questions so thank you all so much for um journeying with us through an entire season of beyond fear uh we'll be coming back for one bonus episode uh with questions from all of you um so please if you have any questions that you would like us to answer or ideas for topics you'd like for us to cover in our next season Mm -hmm. Um, which will be coming out at uh, some point in 2021, you can contact us at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. And remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. You can also head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and you can like our Facebook page called Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast.
we out. We out.